Jill and Ethan Cohn's latest release, The Bout of Buster Scruggs, is a six-part Western anthology film. Their movie debuted in August at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Screenplay Award. To score the film, they again turned to their longtime collaborator, veteran composer Carter Burrell. I'm Carolyn Jardina, and on this episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen podcast series, I'll be talking with Carter about working with the Cohn brothers and his new film, Buster Scruggs. Carter Burrell has composed the music for more than 80 feature films, including 17 with Cone Brothers, such as Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, Fargo, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, No Country for Old Men, and True Grit. He's also a two-time Oscar nominee for Carol and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Carter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. You've been working with the Cone Brothers since they made Blood Simple in 1984. What makes that collaboration so successful? Yeah, I guess that what makes it successful is just that we have a, a similar outlook on uh, on life and on film. So we don't actually ever honestly have to sit back and say, well, what's go- what are we going to do here? This is difficult. We can't figure it out. Why is this not working? We, the, you know, occasionally we get into those situations, but by and large, we don't even really have to discuss what the intention of the film is or of a scene or you know what approach the music should take it's um without even talking about it we are generally on the same page and that's uh that just really simplifies the whole process so when did they come to you or start to talk to you about this particular film well they gave me the script I'm not even sure. I, it wasn't all of the stories. I think they had at least the first four or five stories. A little more than a year ago, I would imagine. They hadn't finished writing the very last story. It was the last one that they wrote of these six stories that make up the film. But I read that, and we started casual conversations, really, just about this form, because the idea of a feature film that includes six stories, six separate films within it, is somewhat unusual, and we were discussing how that might, how we would approach that musically. So did you approach it as that you were composing for six separate features? Not features, because they are, in fact, only about 20 minutes, 20 minutes long. Each, right. So, But six separate films, yes. Uh, there was that. We all knew that they're so different, and the intention is that each of them is very different than the, than the others. But at the same time, the question, the big question was, to what extent do we try to weave a thread through it that, that gives it some unity? Do, do I try to have some melody, maybe, that can appear in all of the stories or is it just a maybe a theme that comes in between them or something like that that was really the big question was how would you how would I bring it all together and even after they shot it that was still an open question and even after I've been working on it for a while that continued to be an open question it was that was the big challenge for this film let's start with Canyon Awake which appears in Tom Waits segment tell us a little bit about the storytelling and what you wanted to convey with the music in that particular chapter. Well, so in that chapter, which is called All Gold Canyon, Tom Waits plays a prospector who comes upon this canyon. He's entirely by himself. He and his burrow are by themselves. It's this gorgeous 
is really the most beautiful <laughs> valley you've ever seen. I think they shot it in Colorado and it's filled with um, wildlife. The actual wildlife sort of become characters because there are no other humans in the in this story. There's a deer, there's an owl, you know, butterflies, fish. And he enters the canyon singing a song. He enters the canyon singing Mother McCree. And upon hearing that, all the wildlife vanish. <laughs> they all run away and you don't see them again, largely until he leaves at the end. But Canyon Awake is a piece that plays before he even comes on the scene. It's, it is really just the theme of this gorgeous valley and of nature before man's arrival. It's an orchestral piece, and it's got a quasi-Celtic, I'd say a Celtic, you know, feel to the to the melody. There's nothing to tell you that he has a Celtic background, but throughout the chapter, he sings this song, Mother McCree, which is basically a cliche of an old Irish, you know, sentimental tune, right? There's this crusty old prospector entirely by himself who's singing a song about his mom, you know, and, and he he does that. Tom Waits does that throughout the, the scene. So that just suggested that, yeah, oh, I don't know, maybe there's a little Irish background to him. And that's what made me lean in that direction with the composition. But also this particular chapter, each, each of the six chapters is shot with a different look. They each kind of hearken to a different aspect of the Western film tradition. Like there's one that looks more like a spaghetti Western. This particular one looks more like a sort of late 40s or sometime in the 40s, like a, you know, John Ford or Howard Hawks western and the colors and the camera angles all contribute to that so the orchestration in what i wrote is trying to lean in that direction too it's a more you know it's a traditional approach to instrumentation with strings woodwinds brass percussion another favorite is the girl who got rattled would you introduce that song Sure. So that chapter is about a wagon train, an oxen-led wagon train of settlers that are heading to Oregon. And in this uh, part of their journey, they're, they're going across. It's shot in Nebraska, and I don't know if that's exactly where it's supposed to be. But anyway, it's these very flat, featureless grasslands that lead on forever. And this wagon train makes its way across. There is a woman played by Zoe Kazan who is um, going to an uncertain future there in Oregon and begins a uh, companionship with one of the leaders of the of the wagon train. And, you know, it's um, that's really the focus of the entire chapter is how the two of these people who don't know each other, but they're both going into this, you know, unknown area, how they begin to negotiate a relationship. So this particular piece, The Gal Who Got Rattled, is actually the final piece of music that plays in this chapter and kind of sums up all of the, the themes of hope and movement. And it, it ends with actually this big shot of the, of the wagon train heading off into the sunset. Very traditional Hollywood Western of, you know, the future, basically.
we really were trying to suggest something you know hopeful in honesty all of these little six westerns that make up the film you know none of them is really a traditional western in in that you know the western is kind of the mythology of america and that's why the the western film tradition is what it is it, it is even though obviously these these stories take place in like the 1870s that that's when the westerns were but that was how hollywood chose to present the origin of our country people weren't really making that many movies about you know the 1760s they were making movies about the 1870s and that idea that we imagine for ourselves of america as a, a country of explorers and frontiersmen and you know loners and you know what have you so for these stories joel and ethan are taking that as a as a context but what's missing in most of the stories is they've they've sucked all the the hope and self-aggrandizing you know pat yourself on the back america kind of feeling the one thing that the, all these stories have in common and this is how joel put it to me is non-accidental death <laughs> they all take place in the west and they all feature when you get right down to it death in some way so it in, in other words with the same way the old traditional westerns featured some hopeful message about what makes America, you know, America. This is slightly different. This is more about the way that that frontier life had a dark side too, a significant dark side. But of all of the stories, this particular one, the gal who got rattled, is the one that there is some hope. Uh, you throughout the story, you you sense hope building for some future for these two people and for this wagon train and for this country and. Um, so that's one thing that's different about this than all the other chapters. Another one is The Mortal Remains, and that is in the last chapter, which largely features an ensemble cast inside a stagecoach. Right. Tell us about that one. That was the last one that they wrote. We also like basically edited and scored these in order, too. So it was the last one to be edited. It's the last one I saw and the last one I wrote music for. This is uh, through their interpretation of like a Rod Serling story where yeah you, you know you could have shot this on a, on a sound stage easily because it's really five people in a stagecoach uh, at night so you don't you, see, you don't see any landscape or anything um, and the first half of it is in, is all talk this uh, this really funny beautifully written dialogue between these five characters and very dense so not much music in the first half of it but the last half, they arrive at their destination and they get out of the stagecoach. It's night. They arrive at this hotel where they all are going to have to stay. And from that point on, there's almost no dialogue. So the whole second half of it is largely carried by the music. And so that's why it's very you know, um, satisfying for myself. I get to basically tell the story. And the story is, um, is ambiguous, too. Again, compared to most of the other stories in this film, this one doesn't really have any plot or anything like that. It's sort of a ghost story in that the people in the stagecoach are going to this place and somehow you get the feeling, without anyone saying it, that the place that they're going to is death. So um, there's a bit of a ghost story quality to it. And when they arrive there, no one wants to go into the hotel. So basically the music just plays that. They arrive and the music plays the the way that they have to go into the hotel. You can't avoid the hotel. <laughs> They're going to have to go into the hotel, but they try to avoid it. And uh, yeah, for me, that kind of an assignment is, uh, is a lot of fun because there's nothing else going on. No one is speaking. The music is 
doing everything that dialogue would be doing. It's giving you the misdirection and the direction, the emotion and the, um, the way people are trying to avoid their fate. It's all there in, in the music. When you were working on the cues for this film, was there one chapter that was trickier than some of the others? You know, they were all tricky, each in their own way. And I think Joel and Ethan encountered this with the, the editing, too. I think we all underestimated how it would be much harder and much more time-consuming to make six short films than it is to make one long film. Because with, with a feature film, you at some point settle on your themes and your pacing, and you'd establish the tone. And for instance, for myself as a composer, I'd establish my instrumentation and my main melodic material. And then you, you use that to build the, the film score. Here, we had to do that six times, each in our own way. So um, I think we all underestimated how tricky it would be. And each film has its own challenges. Uh, for, say, going, you know, going in reverse order, for The Mortal Remains, it was the fact that the second half, the music has to tell the whole, the whole story. And a story that's... It suits music well, though, because the story isn't... It's abstract and un, non-specific. Music is great at that, right? Music is non-specific in, in the way it communicates. But each one has its own challenges. And, a, and for that one, why did you focus on the instruments that you did? My approach to that one was to have these very low, dark winds like bass clarinet and contrabass clarinet that are, you know, that definitely speak of a ghost story. They're very dark, you know, mysterious sounds. And then on top of that, contrasting with it, the harp and, and violins to, to just, again, it makes it creepier when they're all the all the sound is either extremely low and extremely high and there's nothing in between to, to connect them. And that's something that I did in that, in that chapter. And just yeah, look for as much color from a, a small number of instruments as possible, because again, this that is sort of their most intimate of the six stories. And I didn't want it to be; it wouldn't make any sense for it to be big and orchestral. It should really have the right thing was for it to feel stripped down. Just as few, there's just a few characters and there's just a few instruments, but choosing those instruments so that it's not a natural combination. It's a sort of an off-putting combination, like I say, contrabass, clarinet, and harp is a good example, that contributes to just the, the way that it leaves you feeling uncomfortable, which is the right feeling for, for that chapter. And then other chapters, like the Tom Waits one, is openly old-fashioned. And there the challenge for me is I had to try to pretend to be a 1940s you know, composer to a certain extent. And we even tried pushing that, tried to say, well, what if we really try to make it sound like Dimitri Tiomkin doing a, you know, Howard Hawks Western or something. But when I did try that, that didn't work because then it didn't feel like us anymore. It did feel like I was actually like imitating someone else. Uh, so we pulled back on that. But there's a lot of experimentation like that because we weren't sure to what extent we are adopting the look and feel of um, these other periods or to what extent are we making our own movie that references these other periods in film history. Um, we had to figure that out. Carter, let's go to another chapter. Tell us about the wingless thrush. Well, this chapter um, stars uh, Liam Neeson and Harry Melling, and they take a performance around 
It looks like the Pacific Northwest. It's snowing and cold and bleak the entire time. Uh, and they have this wagon that they, they take around, and Harry does a performance for the, the locals as they, as they tour. And even though it's the two of them together in this wagon, basically every minute of every day, I don't think you ever see either of them speak to each other. <laughs> the whole thing basically comes off as being a, um, or in, anyway, in my opinion, it's basically a, one view of the relationship between a producer and the talent. Liam Neeson is the producer, Harry Milling is the talent. And it's a, it's a very bleak and <laughs> I guess you'd have to even say a somewhat harsh view of that, of that relationship. But that's the wingless thrush and the music you know, tries to capture at the same time the bleakness that we, that was the adjective we always used about that chapter, but also something, I wanted also to capture something about how for Harry, the performer, he's bringing culture to, you know, the the frontier and that that's, there's something for him about that that's like a sacred calling and, um, and that as bleak as the situation is that that there's also some beauty in, in what he's attempting to do. Is a what you call it, what we would call a pedal tone in music. In other words, there's a an underlying note that never changes, doesn't move at all. And on top of that are are moving parts. So this underlying note is basically the bleakness. It's the uh, it's the monotony of the of the um, of the landscape and of this relationship. But on top of it, there are parts that are attempting to move around and find new relationships. You know, guitar, harp woodwinds. That's the way I looked at it. And uh, so it's kind of a modular approach to writing where one thing stays the same and other modules are moving. But I think it also, I mean, I know this sounds very formal the way I've described it, but I think that it does convey, you know, the emotional aspect of what Harry's character is, is, is doing. He, he comes and he does these uh, monologues, performs monologues from Shakespeare, Shakespeare and what have you right. uh, for for these uh, the poor folks that are living in these frontier towns and it you know it's not with any great success necessarily but there's some sort of beauty about that and and the music even though it it is sort of this one sounds for i would say is not trying to sound like music from any western period or a period of western filmmaking this one just sounds like me <laughs> but um but i uh, you know, maybe that's one reason why I, you know, I like it. I think we're not trying to create a different homage to a particular period or anything like that. It really, because of its bleakness, and but also I think beauty. I think it really does seem like the Coen Brothers film seems like my music, and um, I, I like that. And then you recorded the score with an orchestra at Abbey Road Studios. That's right. Yes, at Abbey Road. Yeah, we uh, had. I guess about, at the largest, maybe about 40 players with me conducting. You know, it's a wonderful studio. It seems probably a little ironic that to record a Western, we <laughs> go to, to London. But those are decisions that often have to do with the people making the film, the people who put the money into it or the people who are distributing it and whether they want to get involved in the American Musicians Union and the different 
you know, residual regimes. In this case, Netflix as a distributor, you know, they're not a signatory to any of the union agreements here, so they wanted to go to London and so they wouldn't be involved in that. And, you know, I, I mentioned that because I think that's more and more films are being made by companies that aren't signatories. And I think, you know, it's a it's an issue, and I, me as a composer and a union member, um, I, you know, I think it, it's always worth pointing out. It's, you know, it's not going to go away the issue, and we do need to try to do something about it. Do you see things changing? <laughs> I wish that I could say that I did. I, uh, you know, this has been an issue for probably uh, twenty years now, but it was previously it was an issue just because there were independent film producers who were not recording in Los Angeles and New York in order to avoid union issues. But now because of the, uh, you know, emergence of Netflix and Amazon as, you know, as content makers, as, which is, you know, exploding, right, in the last few years, it's a very different issue. Now it's not just a handful of, you know, runaway production, as they say. It's, you know, it's a big thing. So um, I, you know, so it's really something that your community will be talking about a lot more, it sounds like. It's true. I mean, what it did to, in New York, which is where I'm from, is we lost basically all our orchestral recording studios. Just there wasn't enough. You know, we don't have a lot of film recording going on there, but we did have some. And we had Broadway uh, cast albums and things like that. But the, um, the film recording basically just kind of disappeared and uh, lost a lot of um, a lot of recording studios, and no one's going to rebuild those. And I know we've lost studios out here, too. And this is not the only reason that studios are closing, but as far as the orchestral studios, big studios closing, it, it definitely is one of the reasons. And it's, I don't I, you know, I have my own ideas about what could be done, but it's a very controversial issue. I, I tried to get involved maybe 15 years ago with the union out here and in New York. But there are so many vested interests on so many sides of this. So many people put in so much work making the union contracts the way they are now. They don't want to change that. So um, I, I don't know. I, I wish I could say that I was uh, hopeful, but I'm not terribly hopeful. What are some of the genres that have inspired you the most? Do you like to do Westerns? <laughs> <laughs> I don't especially like to do Westerns. I mean, I will say that when I was especially when I was starting out, you know, the days of like Raising Arizona, I, you know, Ennio Morricone's spaghetti western scores were very inspiring because, I mean, he was able to take just a handful of instruments in some cases, but do a, a score with incredible character and color, even operatic, even. <laughs> but a lot of times it's just, you know, an electric guitar and a harmonica and, you know, a panpipe or something like that. He by carefully choosing the instruments, he was able to create scores with such distinction. And when you're starting out and you have no budget, and also I had no you know, training in orchestral music, I found those scores to be very inspiring, and they really helped me to get an angle on doing independent film. Do you have a personal favorite or group of favorites that you worked on with the Cone Brothers? Well, I don't really have a list in my head, but I will say that Fargo is always a favorite. I feel that's a case where the the music and the film really came together in a sort of ideal way, as far as I'm concerned. Of course, the execution of the film is, is great. Like Fran's you know, performance is amazing. It was written for her. And it presented particular musical challenges, the main one being that the film presents itself as being true. It says that right at the beginning, basically, this is a true crime story. Um, but at the same time, you see these comic characters 
performing murders. And like, so how are we supposed to take that? Joel and Ethan were very concerned that, you know, if we do work up the comedy, we, we emphasize that with the music, people aren't going to believe it's true. But if you make it seem like people are really being murdered, why people aren't going to laugh? And trying to find a musical solution to that problem was, uh, was interesting. My solution in the end was basically for the music to not only take the story seriously, but to take it too seriously. The music is like bombastically self-serious. But then also I was very happy with the music because you know, I, f I found this Scandinavian folk tune, which when I translated it into sort of film noir orchestration, it worked really well. It played, you know, again, it was, I was able to play both the delicacy of the snow and ice, but also sometimes play the, again, the crime part, play it um, more like a, you know, a, a Miklos Rosa film noir um, score. So that one just has a lot of elements that I'm very satisfied with. So what's next on your plate? I have a film coming out in April with uh, the animation studio Leica up in Portland. Uh, it's called Missing Link. And I'm working on something right now with Bill Condon that uh, we're going to record in, in about a month. This is your first time working with Leica, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, I've always admired their films since Coraline. So it was, uh, you know, it was a thrill to, uh, to get a call from them. It was great. Now, this is your second stop motion because you also scored Anomalisa. <laughs> That's right. What do you enjoy about animation? <laughs> Well, you know, in fact, animation is something that I studied in college. I was, and in fact, I was my, it was my day job. When Joel and Ethan hired me to do Blood Simple, the day after we finished recording Blood Simple, I got on a plane to Tokyo to work on an anime there for a few months. So that was actually my, yeah, as we say in the music business, it was my day job. So yeah, I, I have a, uh, a deep love of animation. I have, it's very time consuming and I haven't done any of it in a really long time. But yeah, I do love animation. I think... Particularly, I love the process of animation rather than the actual finished product. I love the process because it is like magic that you're bringing inanimate objects to life. And I just, especially stop motion is a perfect example of that, where you actually have inanimate objects on a table and you bring them to life. So um, I, yeah, I have an abiding love of that. And what can you tell us about Bill Condon's next film? Well, it's called The Good Liar, and it stars uh, Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren. And, you know, you can imagine it's always fun to see the two of them on screen <laughs> together. And it's a, it's a, but at the same time, it's an odd movie. I, I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but figuring out the right musical angle on it has been challenging, I have to say. Uh, but Bill and I have worked together a lot. You know, after working on that film for about a month, he just said, honestly, that I had to throw everything away <laughs> and start again. Okay, but you know, I know with Bill, you know, if he says that, he's got a good reason to say it because we've worked together so many times. Anyway, it's. I think I have now figured out <laughs> the right approach, but I'm I'm in the midst of it now, so I can't really. I don't want to say too much about it. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure.